Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hey, happy Sweater Vest Sunday. If you're new to First Baptist Church, uh, I want to let you in on a little inside joke, a little inside secret. On the fifth Sundays, when they roll around, uh, the fellas and some ladies wear sweater vests. Uh, some ladies have started wearing hats. Susan Houghton has started a counter movement, um, which is okay. We endorse this counter movement, so it's not really a counter movement then, is it? Anyway, so next time a fifth Sunday rolls around, I don't know when that is, break out the sweater vests, break out the hats, and, and uh, have a good time with that, all right? Do you have your Bible this morning? A couple of you do. It's good. It's good. You need it. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack right in front of you. Take it out and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are in our fourth week of a study that we've been doing, a topical study of Tom Rainer's little book called I Am a Church Member. I uh, hope that it has been profitable to you. Uh, we think it was profitable enough to take a break from our normal process of just exposition from the pulpit and study this little book because it brings together some applications of years of study we've done from the scriptures uh, in First and Second Corinthians and Acts and Ephesians most recently. Tom Rainer does a good job of bringing those things together uh, and giving us six really solid applications of those truths that we have learned. Last week, uh, we, we dealt with the most difficult uh, text, the most difficult chapter of his little book. He said, and we say, I will not let my church be about my preferences and desires. In order to do that, we must look to Christ on the cross, be willing to set aside our own agendas and, and serve one another. I think that's the best part of the pledge from last week is my Savior went to the cross for me. I can handle a little inconvenience, a little, little music that might not be to my preference, a little temperature that might not be exactly like I like it little meeting that might not fall on the right day for me, I can handle those kind of things because Jesus went to the cross for me. The gospel compels us to this kind of selflessness, uh, this kind of sacrifice. In fact, the kind of selfishness and self-centeredness that is often on display in churches is absolutely, absolutely in conflict with the gospel message. That, that Jesus would come and give himself for us and then we would fight about some of the things that we fight about is absolutely ridiculous. So last week was tough, it was difficult, it was confrontational, it was convicting. This week will be awkward. Um, it may seem to you a little bit self-serving as I invite you to pray for me and the other pastors of First Baptist Church um, as I talk about what my role is and some of the interesting, unique aspects of my job. Uh, some of you may be sitting out there saying, oh, you, th you think your job is harder than my job? Come do what I do for, for a couple weeks. Not at all today trying to claim that, that my job is harder than your job. Uh, I hope you don't hear that at all. Uh, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's different, though. I, I think there's a unique aspect to ministry um, that, that is different from, from every other task that, that people perform, and we'll talk about that a little bit um, today. I uh, don't want it to come off as whiny. Uh, I want to give you some disclaimers. Uh, number one, I love my job. I love it can't imagine doing anything else. The best, single best piece of advice I got uh, when I was being trained in the ministry was, if you could do something else and be happy, do it. Uh, if, if, if you could be a banker and be happy, be a banker. If you could be a lawyer and be happy, be a lawyer. Um, but if there's a fire in your bones to preach the word of God and nothing else will satisfy, then do that. Uh, I love my job. Secondly, I love you. I think you guys are great. I think this church is great. Uh, I, 
I'm glad to be here serving in this capacity. I'm glad that my family is a part of this church. I'm glad my children are being raised uh, with your help and with your guidance. I am glad uh, to have my family here as a part of this. And so what I'm asking today is, is for you to come alongside me, come alongside the other pastors of this church and support us, encourage us, pray for us. What I'm not asking you today is to drag me back from the edge of the cliff. Um, there, there's a tendency to, to read into that, into a message like this today that I'm standing on the precipice about to fall, um, and, and that's not where I'm at today. I've been there. I've been on the edge of that cliff needing someone to pull me back, needing someone to come along and, and help me and rescue me. I've been there. Some of you know that. Maybe, maybe too few of you know that uh, about me, um, but that's not where I'm at today. Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm in a pretty good place today, and so uh, I want to invite you today to come alongside and, and uh, pray for and encourage and support um, us as we as we serve you as we ultimately serve the Lord here at First Baptist Church. Uh, so let's pray together and we'll dive right in. God, we come before you today. Uh, we're thankful, thankful that you've brought us to be a part of this body. You've welcomed us into this local family. You've knit us together by grace. You bind us together with the gospel, not with our preferences and our common backgrounds you bind us together with the gospel thank you that you brought us to be part of this local body but more than that we thank you that you've you've made us to be part of the global body of christ you've made us by your grace to be part of your eternal family thank you for all of these gifts that you have provided for us recognize that we don't deserve a single one of them. We don't deserve a single good thing from you. You give and you give and you give. We thank you for that. God, we know there are people in this room today who have never tasted of the gifts that you can provide, never tasted of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and cleansing. They know nothing of those things, and I pray today that you come to them those things known to them that their life would be forever different eternally different because of your grace because of christ's sacrifice because of the resurrection because of your love god would you move in this place today for your own glory in christ's name we pray amen amen so you're in first timothy chapter three and we're going to get there uh, in a little while I want to approach today with a series of questions, uh, a series of questions about pastoral ministry and what does it mean to be a pastor. The focus of the chapter, chapter four of Rainer's book is, I will pray for my pastor regularly, I will pray for my leaders daily, um, and so that's what we're going to talk about. So the first question is, what does a perfect pastor look like? And uh, these bullet points that are going to come up come from a little funny thing that's floated around on the internet forever uh, in a lot of different forms, but this is what the perfect pastor looks like. Number one, he pleases everyone. Number two, he preaches for exactly 20 minutes, but includes an hour's worth of content. Uh, number three, he works from, that's a typo, my bad, uh, from 7 a.m. to midnight and does everything from counseling to cleaning toilets. This is my favorite. He's 30 years old and has 35 years of experience. He is tall and short. He is thin and heavy set. He's handsome, but not overpowering. He has one brown eye, one blue eye. His hair is parted in the center. One side is straight, one side is curly. He has a balding spot on top to show some maturity. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all of his time with senior adults. 
He works the following hours each week, 20 in pastoral counseling, 10 in meetings, 5 in emergencies, 20 in visitation and evangelism, 6 in weddings and funerals, 30 in prayer, 10 in creative thinking, and he's always in the office. He has perfect kids. His wife plays the piano. It's got to be on the list, right? A couple more. He is gifted, talented, scholarly, practical, popular, compassionate, understanding, patient, level-headed, dependable, loving, caring, neat, organized, cheerful, and above all else, humble. And guess what? It doesn't exist, right? That, that guy does not exist, and we need to admit that. We need to admit that the perfect pastor uh, does not exist, and I want to confess to you that I'm not the perfect pastor. Uh, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not a perfect guy at all. Um, I'm weak and frail and, and fallen saved by grace. Yeah, totally unworthy. That's exactly right. So now that we've talked about what the perfect pastor looks like, let's talk about what the real pastor looks like. These statistics that I'm going to share with you come from an article that was published in 2011 called Don't Make Your Pastor a Statistic. Uh, these statistics are based on research from the Schaefer Institute and the Barna Research Group. Uh, I want to say before we get into too much of it uh, that, that uh, I'm not part of this many of these statistics. Some of them, absolutely, uh, but many of them not. I, I don't want you to feel condemned uh, by these statistics. I just want you to be aware uh, that, that this is where a lot, of, a lot of us live. A lot of us uh, who serve the Lord and his church, it's where we live. So it's broken into several sections. First one, dealing with hours and pay. Uh, number one, 90% of pastors in these studies report working between 55 and 75 hours a week. Uh, I love that because I often get uh, people saying, well, you, you just work two days a week. Uh, Sunday, Sunday and Wednesday, that's all you do, right? No, it's not, not all we do. 50% uh, feel unable to meet the demands of the job. 70% of pastors in these studies feel grossly underpaid. Next area is training and preparedness. This is eye-opening. 90% of pastors feel they are inadequately trained to cope with the ministry demands. 90% of pastors said the ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be like when they entered the ministry. Next category has to do with health and well-being. Listen to this first one. 70%, 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could. They have no other way of making a living. As far as marriage and family goes, 80% of pastors believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their family. 80% of their spouses feel the pastor is overworked. 80% of spouses feel left out and underappreciated by church members. I'm going to post some articles this week um, about some of these things. You know, follow me on Twitter or Facebook or the church on those kind of things. You can read those articles. One of them will have to do with uh, pastor's wives and the unique needs of, of pastor's wives in the church and how you can come alongside them and help them. As far as uh, church relationships, some of these are eye-opening. 70%, 70 of pastors do not have someone they consider a close friend. They are acquainted with a whole lot of people. They are public figures and have very few friends. 40% of pastors report serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. Number one reason pastors leave ministry is that the church, church people are not willing to go the same direction and goal of the pastor. Pastors believe God wants them to go in one direction, but the people are not willing to follow or change. This last one, this last one is big. As far as pastors and longevity, 
A study shows that 50% of the ministers starting out will not last five years. I mean, 50% of the guys graduating from Union University or Southern Seminary or someplace like that, 50% of them won't be in the ministry after five years. One out of every 10, only one out of every 10 ministers will actually retire as a minister in some form. In other words, only one out of 10 finishes the race. 4,000 new churches begin each year. 7,000 churches close each year. Over 1,700 pastors left the ministry every month in 2010. Over 1,300 pastors were terminated by a local church each month, many without cause. And over, this is, this is staggering, that's really only indirect association with pastors. Over 3,500 people a day left the church last year, 2010. 3,500 people a day walked away from the church. So we talked about what a perfect pastor looks like. That's a little glimpse into what a real pastor looks like. It's not always a pretty picture. And I'm not saying that to condemn you. Again, I don't consider myself part of many of those statistics. But I want you to be aware uh, of, of what it's like, a little bit of what it's like. Third question we'll deal with is the most important question. What does the Bible say a pastor should be like? We could take surveys. We could do studies. But really, at the end of the day, all that matters is what the Bible says, right? All right, so 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 to 7. We're going to see a word right off the bat. Um, the word overseer is, is the word that New American Standard translates. Uh, that is the office of pastor, elder, bishop, overseer, all very much synonymous in the New Testament, refers to this office of leadership and teaching in the church. This is what God's word says. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious. But gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, would love, and I have at times here at First Baptist Church, walked through every one of those descriptions, every one of those qualifications for um, elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. Um, not going to do that today. Not going to walk through every single one of those. I will tell you what pugnacious means, because um, it's not a word we use very often. It means fighting. Uh, means one who likes to fight um, from, from the root word where we get pugilism from. Um, so that's the, that's the picture there. Um, but I want to talk about four of these ideas, four of the biggest ideas that is in this text so that you will have an understanding of what is expected of me uh, so that you can come alongside and, and, and help me in this process. First big idea that we want to talk about is the concept of being above reproach. It says he must be above reproach. This is absolutely huge, absolutely huge and very general. Uh, it is the proverbial umbrella that the rest of these descriptions fall under. I'll read you one commentary uh, about this concept of being above reproach, that the pastor is to be above reproach. He says, as such, their work for the church, as well as their interaction with others, are to be of such moral quality that they do not bring shame or in any way disgrace on the body of Christ or the name of Jesus. Above reproach, however, does not mean without sin. No Christian lives an entirely sinless life, nor will we until we reach the glorified state in heaven. 
above reproach means that the overseer's life is free from sinful habits or behaviors that would impede his setting the highest Christian standard and model for the church to emulate. So one of the things we learn from this is that there is a moral obligation, a moral obligation in the office that I would live a certain way, that I would behave a certain way, that my life would be clean. And I want to be that. And I'm not that as I should be. And I'm thankful for God's grace. None of us live as we should all the time. And we are always thankful for God's grace. But I want to recognize that there is, there is an obligation for my behavior. And I want to, I want to be growing in that. And to use this concept of trajectory that we use all the time. I want to be growing in that and be above reproach. So that umbrella rests over all of this. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, above reproach, he is temperate, above reproach, prudent, above reproach, respectable, right? It's the umbrella that hangs over all the rest of this. You probably understand the concept of being above reproach better from its opposite. When you hear stories about pastors who are liars, who are cheaters, who are womanizers, who are sleazy, you hear stories like that, you hear people talk about a pastor, maybe a very public pastor, maybe a, a local pastor who nobody really trusts and who has this reputation around the town as being uh, underhanded and sneaky. Yeah, that's not above reproach. It's not above reproach. The pastor, the bishop, the elder, the overseer must be above reproach. That's the first big idea. second big idea I want to talk about is... Uh, when it says, must be one who manages his own household well. And, and the logic here is clear and convincing. Clearly, one of the pastor's jobs is to manage the church, to oversee it, and to make sure things are working properly. His, his household is a small-scale example of that. Um, there are seven people that live at my house. There are hundreds of people that live here, right? Seven? Just Seven? Seven people that live in my house, and one of my jobs is to make sure that runs properly and make sure it's in good order and make sure nothing's out of hand or out of control. It's a small-scale example of the larger picture of the church, that my job here is similar to my job there, that I'm to watch over all of this and make sure it runs properly and folks are going where they should go and it's not out of control and out of order. And so the logic is, if I can't keep up with that, Right? If, if, if I can't oversee that well and keep control there, how in the world could I possibly keep control here? And, and I want to say there's no guarantee that just because I'm keeping control there means that I would keep control here. But the opposite does seem pretty clear. If you can't keep control there, if you can't keep things in order there, then how in the world? That's the logic that, that Paul uses here as he's talking to Timothy. He says he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's a good question, right? And there are a lot of pastors and pulpits and offices and churches all around today who are absolutely disqualified because of this, who, are, who have no control in their homes, who are not even making any effort to be in control in their homes. And some of that may be because of the churches they serve. Some of that may be because the churches they serve demand that they give all of their time and energy to them and leave nothing for their families. I'm not putting that on completely on the shoulders of the churches these men serve, but you can help us in this area. You can help us in the area of our family relationships and encourage that we be good managers of our households first, primarily, and secondly, good managers of the church. 
The pastor must be one who manages his own household well. Third, at the bottom of the, of the text, it says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. I believe this goes hand in hand with the whole concept of being above reproach. Does this necessarily mean that everyone in town will like the pastor or appreciate the pastor? Yeah, probably not. Probably not because there are a lot of people in town who are lost and love the darkness and therefore hate the light. A lot of people will accuse a pastor when he has not done anything wrong as, a, as an attack from Satan ultimately. Uh, but it does mean that he's generally well spoken of in the community, generally respected, generally seen as a stand-up guy, one who is trustworthy and honest. You get it? So there is, there is an implication not just for my life with you, but for my life with all of them as well. And then the last thing, and this is the scariest one. He mentions falling into the snare of the devil. Look at it at the end of the text. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is heavy. This is real. A snare is a trap. A trap is something that is set intentionally for the purpose of taking captive, probably for the ultimate purpose of killing. My, my father-in-law is an expert trapper. I mean an expert trapper. Makes his living in the winter, essentially, from trapping. And he knows where the critters live. And he knows how the critters run. And he knows where they like to travel and where they eat. He knows the best way to catch them. He doesn't just wander out into the woods and set his traps just anywhere. He sets his traps strategically. Sets them strategically so that he will catch these animals. And when he catches them, he maims them. It is, it is, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to, to talk bad about the practice, uh, but, but well, I'm saying this to show you the parallel between Satan's attempt uh, against me and the other pastors here and my father-in-law's attempt at these animals. When he catches a raccoon, he takes it home and pulls it out of its skin with this device that is straight out of medieval times. It is composed of a, uh, a, a winch, and a series of pulleys and clamps, and he clamps that raccoon in, pushes a button, and it pulls it completely out of its skin. And then he sells it and eats it sometimes at Christmas time, especially. <laughs> it's not good, by the way. <laughs> it's not tasty. My point is this. My father-in-law is an expert at those animals catching those animals, and his desire is only to kill those animals. And this text implies that Satan is setting snares for pastors, traps for pastors. But he's an expert in us, how we live and where we go and where we walk and what we eat, our behavior, and he sets traps for us. And his intention in setting those traps is not to keep us as pets. I believe his intention in setting these traps is to kill us to destroy us, to destroy our reputation in the community, destroy our effectiveness in the church. I believe that's his plan. Listen to the way one scholar says it. He says, the devil has devised a plan to bring the pastor down. He has set the trap. It means the devil sees the pastor as a threat. And one of his highest priorities is to take him down and take him out. And the text is clear. The nature of his trap will be temptation where the pastor's reputation will be harmed. That's real, and that's heavy, and I'm not looking for your sympathy or your pity. I'm looking
looking for your help. This text is clear what the Bible says a pastor should be. A man who is above reproach, a man who manages his own household well, a man who has a good reputation with those outside the church, and a man who will not fall into the snare of the devil. So the next question is, how can I help? How can I as a church member help my pastor be those things? Three things. This is application today. Three things. Number one, you can pray. You can pray for us. Pray for me. Please, pray for me. Paul was constantly asking his people to pray for him. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul invites his people to pray for him constantly. That's one of my favorite places because he says, pray for me even while I'm in jail that I'll preach the gospel. Other times he prays that, that through their prayers he would be released from jail and would be able to go to the furthest reaches of the planet at that point. First thing you can do is pray. Big question is why? Why should you pray for your pastors? Why should you pray for your pastors? I'll tell you because none of us are adequate for the work we've been called to do. None of us are adequate. We've been called to a task that we cannot perform. We've been called to a life that we cannot live. We've been called to something that requires supernatural strength. Pray for us because the battle that we face is spiritual and real. It's not just about coming and saying a good word or, or, or treating us to dinner. Man, a member of this church did that last night. It's out my whole family. This is a huge thing. My whole family. A member of the church was in another part of the, of the restaurant. When it came time to get the bill, we asked the lady for the bill, and she said somebody's already gotten it. And we looked around, and it could only have been one guy. And uh, that was greatly encouraging. Uh, but the battle is not fought necessarily on that level. That was encouraging, and it was helpful. But the real battle that we face is invisible, spiritual, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against those things. Why should you pray for your pastors? Because the battle we face is, is real and it's spiritual. Why should you pray for your pastors? Because the weight we carry is eternal. Paul, when he talks about the sufferings that he's endured, he talks about shipwrecks, he talks about beatings, he talks about all these things. And then at the end of that laundry list, he says, oh, and not to mention my daily concern for the church. Not to mention the fact that you're always on my mind and I'm always worried about you and I'm always concerned about you and I always carry this burden. Why should you pray for your pastors? Because the burden that we carry is eternal. I think about my brother's job. If he messes up, prescribes the wrong medicine, does something wrong, the people he takes care of could die. And that's big, and that's heavy. If I mess this up, if I get it wrong, if I lead you astray, you perish for eternity. And that's, that's heavy. Why should you pray for your pastors? Because the work they do is for your benefit. It's for your benefit we do this. You want a good pastor? Do you want a good pastor? Yeah. I think sometimes we say, yeah, so we start looking for another one. Want a, want a good pastor so he's down the road somewhere else. 
hear, hear me clearly on this. If you want a good pastor, pray for your pastor. We've got some folks who are here today who are visiting. I want you to hear that <laughs> for your church as well. If you want a good pastor, you pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor. We'll talk in a minute about the upward spiral that this could produce in a church. The healthy church members are helping produce healthy pastors, and healthy pastors are helping produce healthy church members, and up and up and up it goes. If you want a good pastor, pray for your pastor. Why should you pray for your church member? Why should you pray for your pastor? All of those reasons. Next question is, how should you pray for your pastors? How should you pray for your pastors? And there are basically four categories I want to share with you. And I'm taking these from an article uh, from Justin Taylor, um, great scholar. Uh, I want to share them with you just verbatim uh, because I think he hits the nail on the head when he talks about these things. Four categories of prayer for your pastor. Number one, pray that he would be a true success. You know what that means? It means this, that he will be faithful true to God's word and hardworking, that he'll be a servant following the example of our foot-washing Lord, that he will love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he will truly believe what he believes about Christ, that he will lead a holy life and not succumb to the sensuality of our culture, that he will lead a life of deep prayer following Jesus' example, that he will have a positive attitude free from jealousy. How should you pray for your pastor? That'd be good. That'd be a good start. Second category is pray for his ministry for his preaching, for time to prepare, for understanding of the word, for application, for power from the Holy Spirit in delivery, for Sunday services, for his leadership, for immediate problems he's facing. Pray for your pastor's ministry. Third, pray for his marriage. Pray for time for each other, for communication, for deepening love, for fidelity. One of the places Satan lays a trap and a snare is in the home, in the bedroom, at the dinner table. If he can pull a pastor and his wife apart, he's done some serious damage. And so he tries. So pray for his marriage. Pray for his children by name. Sophie, Isaac, Mary Beth, Lily, Asher. Pray for them by name. Love to have a conversation with you about how you might pray for them specifically, each of them. Sophie is going on a trip this week uh, to serve in New Orleans with some women and some children. Big. Pray for her. Pray for his children by name. And don't be afraid to ask. This is the last comment I'll make here. Don't be afraid to ask. A conversation with your pastor about how you can be praying for him could do more to encourage him than you'll ever know. Maybe even more than the actual prayers themselves. <laughs> for someone to call up and say, hey, what's going on? How can I pray? What are your needs? I want to know because I love you and I care about you. Could be hugely encouraging. So if you want to help your pastor be what the Bible says he should be, you can pray for him. Second big idea is you can support him. In fact, Scripture calls you to that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. All throughout the Scriptures, we see the common pattern has been for God's people to take care of the servants of God. We see that with the Levites and the priests. We see that with pastors and missionaries and teachers. 
there is an attitude, and I thank God that it's not here, but there's an attitude in a lot of churches that we're going to pay our pastor very little, keep him humble, keep him hungry, keep him needy. It's despicable. It's absolutely despicable. I'm thankful that you guys are not like that. I'm encouraging you to take care of us well. I appreciate that. My family appreciates that. Be encouraged by that, but know that there are there are churches, even in our community, that don't bestow double honor, more like half honor. So you can support. Third big idea is you can follow. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. I read an article last week. A guy said something along these lines. It is a cruel thing, especially in the kind of polity that we have where we recruit pastors. We basically invite a pastor to come and lead us. He said, it is a cruel thing for a church to invite a pastor to come and lead them and then not follow him. Why? It doesn't even make any sense, and I had never heard it in that kind of language before, but it absolutely doesn't make any sense for a church to say, yes, come, come, you individual, you individual, come and lead us, and then not to follow. There's some strong words in Hebrews 13, 17, obey and submit. There's also a great promise and a great motivation at the end. He says, let them do this with joy and not grief, because that would be unprofitable to you. Jesus plays on our own selfishness here. He says, you want a good pastor? Follow him. (laughs) Follow the one you've got. Pray for the one you've got. Let him do his job with joy and not grief. That would be good for you. That would be good for you. So support, pray, follow. I will tell you there's nothing more encouraging to a pastor than when his people get it and they follow, they buy in, and they latch on. It's a good thing. I want to also say, as Paul said, I'm not asking you just to follow me. I don't want you just to follow me or us. I want you to follow us as we follow Jesus. Jesus is ultimately senior pastor here. He's ultimately the head of this church. We want to follow him, and we're inviting you to follow us as we follow him. Does that make sense? He's the head of the church, savior of the body. It's his. It belongs to him. He bought it. With his blood. I didn't. I couldn't. He did. So we ultimately follow him. So, what's a perfect pastor look like? What's the real pastor look like? What's a biblical pastor look like? How can I help my pastor be a biblical pastor? Next question is, how will this impact my church? This is not on the screen. How will this impact my church? How will me helping my pastor be what the Bible says he should be, how will that impact my church? Well, healthier church members produce healthier pastors, and healthier pastors produce healthier church members, and up and up and up we go, right? Oh, man, that's that's a beautiful upward spiral that I believe God has designed to take place in his church. Healthy church members getting healthier, pastors getting healthier, church members getting healthier as a result, and back and forth and back and forth and up we go, the glorious upward spiral that we want to see here at First Baptist Church. However, the opposite is also true. Unhealthy church members who are self-centered, divisive, and immature produce unhealthy pastors. Unhealthy pastors who are burned out, bitter, and distracted produce unhealthy church members, and then we find the all-too-common downward spiral. So I want good for you. 
I'm inviting you today is to want good for me, want good for us, to come alongside and help, not to pull us back from the cliff, but to come alongside and continue to support, continue to follow, continue to pray. If my church becomes healthier, how will this impact the word world? Well, healthier church members build healthier churches, and healthier churches reach out to the world with the gospel by going. We got some folks going. We got, we got more people going than I even know about. Can't even keep up with it sometimes. We got a team in Mali right now, rocking and rolling, taking care of people's physical needs, meeting their spiritual needs. Ultimately, we've got a family that lives in Central Asia giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. We've got a young lady getting on a plane today, right? Uh, today to head to Morocco to help and bring hope to the world. We've got folks, we just got back from Arizona. We've got people going to jobs all over the place and serving here in this community. Healthier churches will make an impact on their culture, on their community, on the world, because they go. They go with the gospel, and they go with a credible witness to that gospel. They've got a life that backs it up. They're not going as blatant hypocrites. They're going with a consistent witness. It's what we want. So here's the invitation today. Pray for us. Support us. Follow us. Ultimately, follow Jesus. Ultimately, it's about him, not about us, but he has given men as apostles and teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the body, for the work of service. He's given us to do that. It's about him, ultimately. So here's the pledge on the board. This is a tough one. This is a tough one not to sign, but to actually do. I will pray for my pastors every day. Their work is never-ending. Their days are filled with constant demands for their time, with the need to prepare for sermons, with those who are rejoicing in bursts, with those who are traveling through the valley of the shadow of death, with critics, the hurts and hopes of others, and with the need to be husbands and fathers. My pastors cannot serve our church in their own power. I will pray for God's strength for them and for their families every day. Let's stand together and pray. thank you for this time together. And again, thank you for this church, this local body. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for bringing me here and my family here. I pray for the desirable, glorious, upward spiral. Healthier church members, helping pastors be healthier, healthier pastors, helping church members be healthier, all for your glory. God, that's what we want here. when we neglect each other when we fail each other when we fail you thank you for grace thank you for mercy God we also want to pray for folks who are in this room who are not part of this family they're not part of your family at all they don't know about cleansing they don't know about forgiveness they don't know about reconciliation to you God I pray that you conviction by your spirit, conviction of sin. Pray that you'll bring brokenness, desperation, and that in the midst of that, you'll turn eyes to the cross. Men and women and boys and girls who see Jesus, who died for them and rose again, who has done the work of reconciliation, who has given the blood of the atonement. Pray that 
forgive, repentance, turn away from sins, turn toward you. Pray that you give faith to believe and trust and depend completely on Jesus for salvation. Pray that you bring light, hope, peace for your glory in this place today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the way we're going to do this today is we're going to sing a song. Song of response, if you're here this morning and you want to come and sign the board and sign this pledge, by all means, you can come and do that. I'm going to go stand over there again today, and if you've got questions about church membership or about the gospel, about how to be saved, I'd love to talk to you about those things. If you want to join First Baptist Church, and this is the time to do it. I'll be standing over there. You respond to God as he leads in your life. You be obedient to him. what you're doing, but I want to introduce a fellow to you. This is Caden Huffstetler, um, fantastic little guy uh, that God is doing some great work in, and he came to me uh, last weekend and said, said, hey, I want to join the church, want to be baptized, and uh, we got to, got to sit down and talk with him and his dad about this a little bit, but he said he wanted to talk to you. Um, 
So we'll let him express what's going on. I'm a believer in Jesus, and I love him. I mean, he created all of us. So uh, he needs to be the center of my universe and all of yours. So we talked about baptism, and he wants to wants to follow Christ in baptism and be a member of this church. So what say you? So move it all in favor, say aye. Aye. All opposed, no. Awesome. This is a fantastic little guy. And, and uh, I don't know if I should say this, but, but I think I will. Um, I think God's going to do some great things through his life. Um, there's some, some interesting stuff about his, his heart and his personality. And, man, you watch out for him. Devil better watch out for him. So we'll pray and then be dismissed. If you're still coming to sign the board, by all means, do that. You sign it any time when you're ready. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Caden. Thank you for grace that you've shown to him. Thank you for his family. Preach the gospel to him and demonstrate the gospel to him. Thank you for the future that you have in store for him. We want you to glorify yourself in his life. Grow him. Continue to grow him. Continue to give him a hunger for your word and an and diligence to study. Pray that you will continue to, to work in his life and use him for great things. You receive the glory and honor and praise for it. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Pray that we will continue to wrestle with what we've heard from your word today. Help us to be church members in a church that honors you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hey, if you want to come speak a word to Caden, he's going to be right down here. Church.